So Money is brought to you by CNET, the site that shows how to navigate change all around us. So Money episode 1312, Spencer Jacob, Wall Street Journal reporter and author of the new book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Obviously, there are people who made money, and there are going to be a lot of people who, who object and people who write to me when I write about this and say, hey, you know, I made a ton of money, screw you. But okay, of course, there are always people who make, there are people who made money buying dot-com stocks at the peak. But as a group, it wasn't a really profitable exercise for all these young people. Welcome to So Money, everybody. Monday, January 31st, about a year ago today, Wall Street experienced one of his biggest headlines, the GameStop stock squeeze. Remember that? It was that crazy money story of a particular stock, GameStop, that surged thousands of percentage points in a short period of time. It was days or weeks, not for any fundamental reason, right? It was a, sort of a challenge. A bunch of people on Reddit and social media banded together to buy the stock and move it up. They wanted to beat Wall Street at its own game. And for a period of time, a short period of time, they did manage to create some Wall Street hysteria. But ultimately, as our guest Spencer Jacob writes about in his new book, The Revolution That Wasn't, the event ultimately revealed the inconvenient truth that small-time investors were playing into Wall Street's hands all along. Spencer Jacob is an award-winning financial journalist. He's the columnist at the Wall Street Journal. And now his book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors, is out. Drawing on his years as a stock analyst, Spencer brings the most nuanced, behind-the-scenes look at that GameStop squeeze. How and why did it happen? What did it mean for the Robin Hoods of the world that facilitated these manic trades? Who were the real winners and losers? And why is this continuing to happen? Be sure to listen to the entire interview towards the end. I ask Spencer for his professional opinion about cryptocurrency. Gotta ask the Wall Street Journal reporter. Here's Spencer Jacob. Spencer Jacob, welcome to So Money. Congratulations on your new book. You have been busy for the past year writing your column for the journal and doing a book. How's it going? Good. Yeah. No, I'm tired, but uh, but I'm very excited. <laughs> um, I'm glad to have this book out uh, and I'm glad to have it out now. Well, it is timely. A year ago this time, we were uh, you were writing about and I was reading about the latest craze to take over Wall Street, which at the time was the Reddit GameStop squeeze. Stock squeeze, it was what we now call the, the meme stock craze, this idea of individual investors banding together initially through Reddit and deciding, let's bring Wall Street to its knees. Let's drive up the price of GameStop, which fundamentally speaking, no need to be buying that stock mm -hmm. at any, uh, you know, uh, there's no urgency there. No, there's <laughs> not. No. That's, that's putting, um, putting it mildly, yeah. 
Right. <laughs> and yet uh, they did this. It became national news. You covered it intimately. This idea, Spencer, that people want to bring Wall Street to its knees, that speculation is a, an aspect of investing, not new, but this story really did make headlines for for a few reasons. Why were you particularly interested in this in this uh, phenomenon? So, you know, writing about investing and writing about money is interesting. At some point, like you think that you've seen everything, that there are new variations on the theme, but you kind of you think you've seen it all. And then you're also a parent and you get to the point where I have three boys, two of them are young adults and one is a teenager now. Then you see them become real people with real money and their friends and you hear what their friends are doing. And, you know, you, you have this, this sense that, and this really affects the, the world of investing is like what each new generation experiences and what their, the older generations have experienced. You know, if you went through the dot-com crash or you went through the Great Depression or you went through the 1970s, it affects you for life. It scars you and shapes you for life. And then you have this young generation coming in. And I always thought like in theory that you, they come in with a clean slate and they're optimistic and whatever. And what they experience in terms of investing for their retirements and the stock market, you know, is kind of there's nothing there but i was wrong you know because there's this young generation in america and i'm talking about people from the between the ages of 18 and 35 let's say you know who have pretty strong feelings about things they they don't really trust traditional wall street advice their experiences have been maybe having student loans that they've had a, a tough time paying off it's difficult for them to own a home a lot fewer 30 year olds own homes today than 30 year olds a, a generation or two ago and a lot of them saw their parents struggle during the financial crisis maybe lose their homes and things like that and and there's this feeling that wall street kind of got away with murder and so they have a really dim view of the Merrill Lynch broker who helped their parents and guy in a suit, you know, tell them what to do. And at the same time, it's a different generation than, than mine, for sure. I mean, I'm in my early 50s, you know, where you're much more willing to take the advice of some complete stranger with a pseudonym on the internet and buy something on the basis of uh, kind of a totally emotional reaction or something, something that's kind of funny and cool, as opposed to, wait, how am I ever going to make money in the long run out of this thing? And so that's the setting there. And then a lot of things happened. It was a really fascinating episode. And, and what's interesting is it's still going on. It's not just a piece of history, even though it's a year later. This, this has continued to echo and grind on until today. And I want to talk about, you know, where we are today as far as speculation and some of the players in, in this, in this moment, you, you mentioned Robin Hood and for sure, this generation, this sort of, you know, the 1835 year olds, they have a different maybe lens through which they're seeing the investing world. Your book, however, it's called The Revolution That Wasn't. Yeah. And, and so it suggests that there was an attempt to do something yeah. revolutionary. It didn't quite work. So coming out of this, what are the takeaways? I can tell you right now for sure, and, and this will be a true century from now, you know, whatever is that the four most dangerous words in investing or this time is different, that there's something completely different, that all those lessons don't apply to this thing. And of course, things change, technology changed. And I go into the, and I, I really, I learned a lot, even though I've been, doing this for, for three decades now about what has changed uh, for investors. And it's it's good news and bad news. It's, it's some really good news in there too. But the, there was this notion that they were really going to stick it to the man, that there was this group of people online that were going to really give, not just give Wall Street a black eye, but make a fortune 
while they gave Wall Street a black eye and that they could band together and that they were, you know, that information flowed so freely. And because of the, the tools, the very intuitive tools that they had, that people who didn't really know, know a lot about finance could still get together, take cues from one another. And just, I'm just going to recap the episode for those of, uh, who might not remember it or, you know, it was, it was really interesting. This is like three weeks after the Capitol riot, this divided country. And you had this one thing that left and right agreed on every talk show host, every, everybody agreed that this was, you know, a travesty that these people were not allowed to kind of keep on trading. But and I'll explain what we kind of what happened and it was great. And aren't these young people wonderful? And they're kind of getting, you know, getting screwed over by wall street. And what happened basically was that you had this, these stocks and GameStop wasn't the only one, but it was the one at the center of it, which is why it's in the title of my book. GameStop. I'm very familiar with GameStop because I've got three sons and I've been there about a billion times over the years to take them to buy games, trade games in whatever. And they were not going there very much anymore. They, they not just because of the pandemic, they just, they don't, a lot of people don't go there anymore. It's like Blockbuster Video was five years before it went out of business. It, people buy games digitally in large part now. And so it was like a sad sack company that was just scuffling along and expected to go bankrupt within a few years. And so people on Wall Street who, who do this felt very safe betting against it. And all the other stocks that were involved to BlackBerry, right? BlackBerry used to be a big, big player in smartphones. It's like you know, you can't even buy a BlackBerry today, right? I mean, it's it's all smartphones. Vintage. Right. And Bed Bath & Beyond that's getting killed, getting killed by Wall Street and all kinds of, of companies like that. AMC that was going out of business because of streaming and because of the pandemic. All these stocks became the center of attention because Wall Street had made such big bets against them. They, there really was a lot of hubris there. Uh, short bets. Short bets involve basically betting, borrowing shares, assuming that the price will go down, then you go and buy it back at a lower price. The catch is though, that if the price goes the wrong way, the most you can make is 100%. The most you can lose is infinity. You know, usually you can't have infinite losses, but that's just in theory. You know, no one thought that that would happen with these stocks. But it did because these people online figured out that they could gang up on people. And you can't, this is something that's illegal to do today. Like if, if three hedge funds got together in a smoky room and said, hey, this fund has sold the stock short, we can really squeeze them. We can push the price up and then they'll have to, they won't be able to find any shares and they'll have to buy it at whatever price we name. That's been illegal since the 1930s. But this was something, and I saw right away, uh, one of my sons brought it to my attention before all the headlines began, that one of his friends was part of this group doing this. And two of my sons were, were on this group, Wall Street Bets, that were doing it. My sons weren't doing it, but they, they were aware of it. Uh, we're like, you know, let's buy the stock, hold on no matter what, don't sell no matter what, buy as much as you can, buy options if you can too, and buy these specific kinds of options that uh, which are derivatives that are increasingly you know uh, available to people with no experience investing, and they'll give us even more bang for the buck, and then we'll blow up these hedge funds. And they kind of they came very close to doing so. And there are a couple of people on Wall Street who lost a lot of money. There's one guy I write about who lost six billion dollars for his clients. Six billion dollars. Wow. Um, and and he wasn't the only one who lost lost billions, right? And so you know what. They, that was the idea that they would do this to more and more people on Wall Street and there'd be no escape and they'd really stick it to them. But I think the part that they didn't get was that a couple of people got bloodied on Wall Street 
But lots of other people on Wall Street made lots of money from this. It was a really profitable and, time, you know. So. And they can, they remained in control when they halted trading. That was the thing too, is that the buck stops with Wall Street. They pull the triggers. Uh, I'm, I'm running out of metaphors. Yes. Uh, but, but the bottom line is that the joke was ultimately on those smaller investors. And, and there was a lot of anger around stopping of trading. Yeah. And so take us there. What, what, what was all that about? So this is the, the kind of the most frustrating and in some ways less exciting part. This is the part that got everyone riled up. You had everyone from Donald Trump Jr. to Alexandria Ocasio-Ortez and late night talk show hosts saying like, hey, this is, they really messed these guys over because they started participating in Wall Street. They were winning. Uh, they had these hedge funds on the ropes. And then trading was halted. And what happened was that Robinhood and then other brokers, Robinhood is the, the most popular broker with these, uh, these young people with small accounts, said, you can't buy any of these several dozen stocks. You can sell them, but you can't buy them. I'm like, what? And it was seen as a lifeline, a sort of bailout to the, the hedge funds. And it, it was, but it wasn't, that's not, the, that's not why it happened. So to explain what happened, it was like Robinhood was too successful. They got too greedy. Robinhood is the, the biggest broker out there that caters to these young people. And what they they did was they encouraged them to trade on margin. They made it very easy for them to use options. And they never imagined that they would all, in a short amount of time, open you know, a million accounts in a few days, borrow Robinhood's money, and buy all of the same few stocks. And that's what they did. And so, the way that, that stock trading works is that there has to be an organization that makes sure that everybody gets paid. And that's a mutually owned, actually government-run body that clears all the stock trades. And they look at how much risk is in the system. And if any broker defaults, and brokers have defaulted in the past, then they go to every other broker and they say, guys, this broker defaulted. You guys all have to chip in some money, you know, and they they have money on deposit at the clearinghouse, and Robinhood did too. They had about seven hundred million dollars just sitting parked in a bank account there, and they called them about three days into this phenomenon in the middle of the night, and said, "Guys, um, we're looking at what your clients are doing here. Can you please give us three billion dollars in three hours?" Of course, there's no way that's more money than they had ever raised in their history as a company, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so they panicked and they were. Three hours away from from basically from being bankrupt, from having to shut down. You know they were making money hand over fist, but they didn't have enough cash to to kind of cover this this liability. And so they said, "How about if we tell our clients they can't buy any more of these stocks? Then we won't have additional risk. Then they'll pay for the stock they already bought. And are we good then?" And they said, "Okay, we'll recalculate. Okay, you only need seven hundred million dollars then." which they raised. They raised a billion dollars that day. They drew down all their bank lines. They raised uh, another billion dollars the next few days. And it was very easy for them to raise money because Robinhood was making a lot of money off of this. And mm -hmm. the guys who run Robinhood, the, the two people who founded Robinhood and, and run it, were already billionaires. And then they became multi-billionaires at the end of it because this was like, this is a great profitable business, getting these young people to, to trade. The only people it wasn't really profitable for were most people who were trading with them. And that's, that's why the, the title is the revolution that wasn't. It's not a, mm. I mean, obviously there are people who made money and I, there are going to be a lot of people who, who object and people who write to me when I write about this and say, hey, you know, I made a ton of money, screw you. But okay, of course, there are always people who make, there are people who made money buying dot-com stocks at the peak. But 
as a group, it wasn't a really profitable exercise for all these young people and not a really great introduction to investing either, I might add. Uh, whereas for people on Wall Street, except for these guys who lost a few billion dollars a piece, it was a great week. It was a great month. It was a great year. They like it. They like it when there's a lot of excitement, a lot of, of new, naive money coming to the market. It's like fresh meat for the grinder for them. They don't care if you make money. I mean, if they make money, that's fine. But it's like the casino. Like if you go to the casino and then somebody's jumping up and down and says, Yeah, I got the jackpot. And everyone's looking at them. You, you know, you might think, like, Wow, it's a bad day for the casino. Not like, no, it's a great day for the casino. The person's there jumping up and down and getting excited and making everyone else. You know, put more quarters into the slot. That's the that's Wall Street's game. If this happens again, and you say it's happening again, maybe not at the level that we saw last January, but this trend, this this behavior, this whatever, maybe the speculation aspect, or just like this pylon, it's happening here and there. The media doesn't really seem to be covering it as extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, it suggests that there are lessons still that have not been learned. And when you talk to, let's say, your sons or your readers, what should we be learning from this as individual investors? Maybe we've covered this, but yeah. I think it it begs repeating because it's happening again. Yeah. And I think with platforms like Robinhood that make it a little too easy to invest mm-hmm. in the gamify investing, we're still vulnerable to falling into these traps. Well, look, this is what I would say. Like, um, I think that you have to look at the, all the the technology and the competition and all the things that have changed Wall Street, right? And that's what made this possible. Like it wouldn't have been possible thirty years ago or fifty years ago for and like their median account has two hundred and forty dollars in it. You couldn't open a brokerage account with two hundred and forty dollars. You couldn't buy anything. You once and even if they allowed you to, you'd chew up all your money just paying them commissions. So it would be impossible to get on the ladder if you were someone with that little money. So now you know, these companies say we're democratizing investing. Well, they're democratizing, like making a lot of money for themselves, but they did democratize investing indirectly. And so I, I guess I'm, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. And you have all these young people who opened accounts. You had tens of millions of younger people who opened accounts who wouldn't have done it before. And, you know, you could have a Robin Hood or a Fidelity, or I'm not endorsing any particular broker. They're, they're all the same. At the end, it depends what you, what was, what you do with it that matters. Or you can have a robo advisor, and with very little money today, and for very very low fees uh, or zero commissions, but uh, trading does cost something. You can get on the ladder, start investing, start saving, because you're not going to have enough money to retire through addition. You're you're only going to get there through multiplication. You you have to compound your wealth in okay. some way. I mean, obviously you could do it through starting a business or buying real estate, but the stock market is the way that most of us are going to do it. And and so getting on that ladder with the stock market is now cheaper and easier than ever. It's totally intuitive. You don't have to know anything. You have these apps that are totally friendly, but the apps are designed to kind of hold your attention. I mean, there's a direct correlation between how often you trade, how often you check your investments, and how you do it. It's inversely correlated. The more you look, the worse you do, right? And these are kind of designed to get you to keep looking. The average Robinhood customer will check eight times a day, right? That's not mm-hmm. good. Don't check your. It's like you're checking your sports teams. You're checking the weather. You're check that this is. <laughs> we're talking about and you. T- you started this conversation by saying this is high stakes stuff. Everybody, this is people's yeah. money. This isn't whether you take an umbrella out or not because the weather was right or wrong that day. This is like you know checking these your investments, 
uh, this obsessiveness about it, this speculation, long term, it does not serve people. And I'm talking you and me and everybody listening. There have been dozens of studies about this. I mean, it's I think there's the fewer things that are, are truer in, in investing is that the more active you are, the less well you do, the more attention you pay the less well you do the the be, you know the people who do best like there there is a comparison between people who work in finance in some type of finance and teachers right you think and how they do in terms of their personal portfolios you think it, it either would be the same because it's random or the people in finance might do a lot better because they know about finance after all and they do significantly worse than than teachers um and my wife works in a, in a in a school too and i'll tell you why. It's because teachers aren't conceited enough to think that they they know that much. And so, they're not in there changing their investments and trading their accounts and constantly checking. They'll look once a quarter or once a year, put money in a 403B and and just salt it away. And they, they do pretty well. And you can do pretty well over the years, saving just a little bit of money. People who think that they can, can beat the game unfortunately, overwhelmingly don't. And they don't even realize that they don't because there are people out there who think they're very clever. And you say like, well, how, what do you, how do you think you've done the last 10 years or 20 years? Like, and there've been surveys that show that people are completely clueless about how they have done. There are people who are, who are very confident in their investing abilities. So, well, let's actually look at your investments. So, I mean, I have, here's your account right here. Like, you know, they, they did a survey where they had people's results. And so, how do you think you've done? What kind of annual return if you made a year like i don't know 8% 10% 15% like no you made 2% you kidding you know like you know because there's money going in and money coming out and so it's not like really intuitive but that's what the numbers say and so there's there's no connection between how you think you've done and how you've done but there is a connection between how well you think you're going to do how how smart you think you are and so mm-hmm. you know i i think this whole tr- these young people my hats off to them for some of them at least did out, outsmart Wall Street. It's a great episode. It's a crazy story. And and I, I tell the guy, go back to the origins of the story and go through it blow, blow by blow. And it's, it, it, it's interesting. I think even if you know what happened in the end, it's still pretty cool how it all came together and, and what happened. And it's dramatic. But at the end of the day, I guess that's what I want people to take away from this is that it, it isn't a, a revolution that like these young people have sort of made a big contribution to, to rich guys on Wall Street who they hate. And they, yeah, you know, yes. and they they made those guys even richer. You know, I mean, it's that's that's so ironic. I find that in history, when there are these extreme events, that there is at in the aftermath some uh, adjusting. Right. There's yeah. a reconciliation um, and it could come in the form of education and learning your lessons, but yeah. also maybe changes in systems. And and are there any changes that Wall Street is now implementing either to prevent or to better democratize the system so that right. there isn't as much anger, pent up anger that would lead to something like this again? Um, anything you're hearing on the street? I, I, in terms of the pent up anger, I don't think they're doing <laughs> anything like that. I mean, I think they're, they're just piling up the dough while the the piling up is yeah. good but in terms of of not being a victim not being the guy who loses 6 billion dollars because of of some people on 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 reddit targeted them uh yeah they are doing something uh lots of people i speak to um that either themselves or they pay software companies that have natural language processing that can you know so if you, if you're on one of these boards and you're like oh here's a great idea i got on wall street bets or super stonks or whatever some computer 
run by some smart guy on Wall Street, already read that, um, interpreted what it meant, reacted to it faster than you can possibly react to it. Um, so Wall Street, Wall Street is is totally fine. Wall Street, mm-hmm. I mean, they'll you know people lose money all the time on Wall Street for new reasons, but that they won't lose money for this old reason, you know. So they're they're sort of fortified against uh, against this thing happening, and and not only that, but they they know how to make money from it better than they used to. So they're mm-hmm. they're they're picking your pocket more effectively than they they used to. In terms of, I mean, what. I, I find really interesting about this. There's a company, and I spoke to a couple of people at this company called Betterment, and they're one of many robo advisors. Robo advisors are a really good development, in, in, in my opinion. They mainly cater to younger people with not a lot of money. It's a financial advisor that's run by an algorithm rather than a person because it costs a bit of money to have a person. You have to have a bit of money, really, for a person to, to manage your money. A, an algorithm doesn't care how much money you have and it can do a lot of the same things. It can't talk you off the ledge, but it can do a lot of the same things. And this is one company I spoke to called Betterman, which was one of the original robo advisors. They had been in business 13 years at the point uh, that my story uh, occurs. And they got a you know big head start, lots of young customers who basically put their money into index funds that are rebalanced all the time, tax efficiently, yada, yada, yada. And then in one day, during this episode that I describe, in one day, Robinhood got as many customers as Betterment had had in its entire 13-year history. So, you know, you have here you have one company, Robinhood, that gets paid up front, right? And you have one company that gets paid on the back end, which is Betterment. Betterment doesn't make anything when you give them money. They make money, they make they take a little fee over the years, right? They, especially if you make money and your nest egg grows, then that's better for them. Robinhood, when you, as soon as you deposit money and start trading, they're making money. They're making money as soon as you trade, whether it's a good trade or a bad trade. And so, I guess there, there's a lesson there that is two lessons, right? One is that it's a lot easier to make money on the front end than the back end. You know, things go wrong, you're not really, you know, you're not held liable for it. And the other thing uh, is that. You should ask that question. You know, when you put your money in into some type of savings vehicle or investment, that's what you should ask yourself: Is this person making money no matter what? Uh, like, how is this person being paid, or is this person getting paid because I thrive? And that's that's I think no, you know, no, no matter what era we're in, no matter what kind of product we're talking about, whatever age you are, you could be sixteen years old or sixty years old, you know. That that's the question that you you need to ask when you engage with Wall Street. How are they making money? And ask lots and lots of questions, and mm-hmm. ask if this person is is you know if they're not totally on my side, at least they're not not on my side. You know, they're sort of. You know, right. I mean, that that's that's a really important thing to ask, no matter what. That there's no apathy. Whether you win or lose, I'm still making money. But if maybe there's more upside for me if you make money, that's always a healthier sign. That's always a healthier sign. Yeah. You want somebody who's, you know, who's out there, you know, with with you and is making money slowly with you uh, rather than making all their money up front. And then we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, Spencer, it's such a treat to have you on the show and because you've been a uh, financial journalist for uh, for a long time. You're highly respected. Your column heard on the street in The Wall Street Journal is a must read. Before you go, though, I have to ask you, because you have such a, a close relationship with the movers and shakers on Wall Street, 
cryptocurrency. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know, like in 90 seconds. Uh, but but I guess my specific question around that is what role should or shouldn't cryptocurrency play in someone's portfolio who has a long-term strategy? I'm not interested in getting your take on which currency no. is the hot one this year or whatnot, but what is your 2022 thesis on this perhaps? And like, you know, as far as everyday investors um, who, first of all, don't even understand it. Like I sort of understand it, but even, you know, I just don't even care sometimes yeah. to understand it. How should this be? How should we participate? I'm not convinced that you have to to participate. I don't think that you'll be uh, poor and homeless if you don't get in on the ground floor on cryptocurrency. I think that the vast majority of them are going to uh, to lose the vast majority of their value, if not not all of it. Um, I'm not making a prediction about the the direction of any cryptocurrency. I just think that. You know, you have to ask yourself if you're interested in cryptocurrencies, are you buying it as a kind of on the greater fool theory, as a speculative vehicle? Like you're, I mean, what I what I notice is that the the price of every cryptocurrency is stated in dollars, right? Um, why should you care whether Bitcoin is worth forty thousand dollars or sixty thousand dollars or a million dollars? Right? It's stated in dollars. It's because that you know our our wealth is still denominated in dollars. Our mortgages are in dollars. Our student loans are in dollars. So people are really buying it as something, for the most part, that they think that they'll sell one day or have as a part of their wealth, expressed in 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 dollars. And you know, if you're really buying it as a a, a kind of an investment that you, you you have some theory or some hope that it's it's going to go up. Just buy something that's you know that 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 spits out dollars, like a company that that makes profits or a bond that that pays you know coupons a couple of times a year. I mean, you know, cryptocurrency. I I, I hate to be like a curmudgeon and tell people like, hey, don't buy this thing. And then it's you know, I, I, my oldest boy was like, he asked me a few years ago about like, what do you think about buying some? I don't know what coin. <clears throat> and I, I was, I, I felt like terrible. I was like, no, come on, you know, don't don't be ridiculous, you know. And then it, I don't know, went up ten times, and he could have made it made a fortune, but who who knew, right? I mean, he, he could have lost ninety percent of its value. You know, there's no there's no rhyme or or reason to it, and and furthermore, they're kind of. Their sons from another mother, or the you know, with these meme stocks, in the sense that they also are very profitable products for the exchanges and the people who trade them, hugely, hugely profitable for Coinbase and all these other exchanges, when people go in, go out, and exchange them, and, and people don't realize how much money they're leaving on the table with cryptocurrencies, the same way they are with stocks, and they're actually they're far more expensive per dollar to get into and out of, and so, you know the. That, that's that's I think some you know, scales are kind of going to fall from people's eyes one by one, and they're going to realize kind of how much money they kind of spent and, and paid in, in in commissions, you know, one day. And so I'm I'm not a, as you can tell, I'm not a huge fan. Yeah, it seems to be, um, you're echoing a lot of what I hear and, and um, even my own personal sentiments around this. But I think that um, as the years go by, it, it, since it's not going away, I feel like we need to address it. But how to do, to address it so that, however, whatever angle you want to take, um, you feel confident. And I, I feel like the media just focuses on the NFTs and the currencies, but there's so many other ways to engage. Right. 
There are people who are transitioning to a career, uh, you know, that's crypto adjacent or crypto related. That's interesting. There are people that are using blockchain um, technology within their, you know, their small businesses. That's interesting. Right. Um, You know, and and of course, the the blockchain is the whole idea of a blockchain is is interesting. Right. I mean, so like it might be the way that we like get title insurance one day. Right. Right. If you bought a house, exactly. that's a crazy process. Like, you know, and you have to go and find some file. That's something that could, you know, maybe one day will be solved by blockchain. So the, the whole idea behind it is interesting. But to say that the idea behind it is interesting and to say that everyone who invests in uh, dog coin, you know, is going to be uh, a billionaire are two totally different things, right? The same way that like, hey, the internet is going to change everything circa 1998, I'm going to buy into pets.com when you lost every cent you invested in pets.com, no matter what point you, you bought into it. Right. It was, it was a little too early and the idea was a a little too half baked. So, you know, the, the idea being good and the investment being good are two totally different things. Just like with cars back when car, you know, there were like 30 car companies back in the day. How many car companies are there today in in the U S airplane companies, airlines, whatever, like they all, they're early movers, it's pretty hard to pick a pick a winner, um, and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I think I mean if if you want to get in on the act as an investor, maybe um, buy into a, a company that could you know could profit from it as opposed to to buying one of the currencies. Of course, you know, go ahead. I mean, you know, if you if you feel strongly about it, I I don't want to be the one to talk you out of it and then right. cost you a fortune in the future. Uh, I knowing what I know, I probably would not. It's all speculative. And whether you're talking about Bitcoin or a piece of art, these are alternative investments currently where we sit now in on the historical timeline. You know, they're not proven. They're extremely volatile. And so you can participate, but don't bet your retirement on it. Absolutely not. I don't have the stomach. I don't have the risk tolerance for that sort of investment. No, no. And most most people don't. And and why should they? Right. Because and you know, what's a crazy thing? I mean, I just don't want to drone on about this. But this crazy thing is that there's this theory like that the gamblers have Um, not a theory. It's a it's a actual proven mathematical thing is that, you know, you if you're really confident about some bet, like betting on a hand and, and blackjack or a horse or whatever, like you have some reason to really think that you've got an edge and maybe you do, you still don't bet all your money on it because there's no, there's no sure thing. Right. And in fact, the more confident you are, maybe the less you're going to bet on it at some point. Right. Because if you're super duper confident in it happening, then and it's going to go and you're going to make a hundred times your money. You know, you don't need to bet all your money. Right. You can bet a little bit of your money. If you think that that Bitcoin's going to a, a hundred million dollars or whatever ridiculous number, yeah, buy one Bitcoin, buy half a Bitcoin, buy a tenth of a Bitcoin, because you know it's you're, you're going to be pretty well off if you got it right, and then it's like an acceptable bet. But I see in these meme stocks and cryptocurrencies, people putting a substantial portion of their their wealth into it because they're so sure it's going to go up a hundred times or a thousand times. Well. Just stop and think about what you're doing. Like that, then you should be risking less, not more. Because you know, if you're you're so sure, then you know you're not a hundred percent sure because nothing's a hundred percent sure. So just just make a little bit on it, and then you know, and then put the rest of your money into normal stuff. And I'll just say this last thing, but I don't know when whenever celebrities get involved in hawking investments, you know, we see Matt Damon, Paris Hilton now doing these commercials. 
that does not encourage me any. <laughs> no, and you know what's a really good rule of thumb um, for you and for me, um, because you, your inbox looks a lot like my inbox, probably. Um, how many, like in the last week, how many pitches have you gotten that have oh. NFT or crypto or whatever? That's a know? great, right? That's a great gauge. That's, yes. That's, a, that's, that's like a good inverse indicator. A lot. Of, you know, of, <laughs> a lot, right? They go into my spam often, but yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah my uh, spam folders fold them too, but there's, but a lot of them go in the regular folder. Spencer, just checking in again, whether you heard about, you know, Elon Musk dog coin, you know, this is amazing. Our, our crypto <laughs> island. I've gotten two different crypto island pitches in the last, I don't know, month. I mean, like, fine. I'm not like, you know, I, I, it, but the the more stuff that you, you get pitched on, that's a pretty good sign. That's like a good rule of thumb writing on the wall, sort of, this is probably a little overcooked. Spencer Jacob, very, very nice to finally meet with you and connect with you. Congratulations on your book, The Revolution That Wasn't, GameStop, Reddit, and the Fleecing of Small Investors. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Thank you very much, Farnoosh. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Spencer for joining us. His book is The Revolution That Wasn't, available everywhere. We did it, everybody. We closed the month of January. I hope everybody is healthy. Looking forward to the rest of the year. Thanks, as always, for joining me here. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend. I'll see you back here on Wednesday, and I hope your day is so money. Money.